This podcast is brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hi, folks. How are you? I'm Philip Brady, and you're listening to my buddy, Gavin Wood. Welcome to this very special podcast. I'll be talking to Australian media personality, radio, television, and voiceover artist, and his career has spanned over 65 years in the media, and his name is Philip Brady. And he's with us right now. Hello, Philip. Oh, Gavin, how are you? Very well indeed. It's great to have you on the podcast. I've been trying to get you for a long, long time. You are one of my heroes. I love your work. You've been in the business over 65 years. Uh, I don't think anyone's going to top that, do you? Well, no, the amazing thing is I've done it without any talent at all. I'll ah. tell you why. I don't <laughs> sing, I don't dance, and I don't tell jokes. I think I might be a fraud, Gavin. No, you're definitely not. You're the best wingman in town. Now, I'd like to take you right back to your very, very early days. Where were you born and raised in Melbourne? Yeah, I was born at the Mercy Hospital in East Melbourne, and I'm one of those rare human beings who remembers being driven home from hospital. Uh, And people say, no, you can't. But the point was, in those days, the year was 1939, my father owned a Hudson Terraplane, and I remember driving back from East Melbourne to Kew uh, in a bassinet, and I was only eight days old. Goodness me, that's an amazing recollection. Yeah, it must mean I have a very high IQ, Gavin, as you'll appreciate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, that's good. Now, was life good growing up for a, a young Philip Brady? Yes, it was terrific, although I didn't know them, I believe... My neighbours included Barry Humphreys and uh, Philip Adams, although we didn't meet in my childhood. But I grew up in Kew in amazing circumstances. My father was a psychiatrist at the Kew Mental Hospital and later at the Kew Cottages. We stayed in that home until I was 28. It was a wonderful upbringing for me. And you grew up around uh, all those special people, and you've been with special people all your life. That's how you cope in the media. Uh, Yeah, well, I think it's made me probably more compassionate because, you know, my father taught me to be very tolerant of people. And uh, over the years, I've met some wonderful, wonderful people. There's a girl who started working for us when I was only 17, She only died about three years ago, and uh, her name was Lois, and uh, uh, she was in special care and later aged care. And, you know, I kept in touch with her, Gavin, till the day she died. And every year when Pete Smith and his wife Jackie would invite me to Christmas dinner, they also invited me to bring Lois with me. Oh, that's really nice. Now, I've got a note here that you were a DJ at five years old. Tell me about that. My grandparents had what was called a panatrobe. I'm looking at it now. It's in my sunroom, but it was virtually what we would call a wind-up gramophone. Okay. And you're probably familiar with them. And uh, I would be driven down to Hawthorne to my grandmother's home, uh, and they had the old 78 records. I, oh, you'd be too young to remember 78s, but... <laughs> oh, I, I remember putting in the needle at my grandmother's yeah, the, house. the steel yes. needle or whatever. So, yeah. so here I was at the age of five down there and being very enterprising, Gavin, cutting ads out of the paper and actually uh, reading them, you know, between records and changing steel needles. Things like, more Miller, Mum, and uh, 
Oh, lovely, 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 foolproof hosiery. <laughs> so <laughs> here I am at the age of five. Now, this was a bit of a problem for my father. Mm. I've told you previously he was a psychiatrist, yeah. and he really worried that I was talking to myself. And oh. uh, this was quite a, a cause for concern because I'd, I'd carry it to extremes. I'd come home and set my alarm for uh, 5.30 in the morning, and get up and go out to our laundry and pretend I was doing a breakfast session. I also had a wind-up gramophone uh, hearing cue. And so not only cutting out ads but reading them and, and actually going on there at 5.30 in the morning in my laundry, talking to myself and uh, actually talking into a into a broom. You were doing breakfast radio at five. <laughs> yeah, so so you know, I've had I've had a bit of practice, I've had a bit of experience, and I'm still mate at eighty four. I'm still trying to get it right. And we love you for it too. Now, what were your <laughs> early uh, uh, school memories? Well, I went to school with uh, some people who went on to become quite famous. Uh, Mike Walsh was a contemporary of mine. We started off at Xavier Prep, which is Burke Hall in Studley Park Road Q, and for me that was at the end of the war. That was uh, in 1945 I started in prep school. Uh, I was also in the same class as Mike McColl-Jones, who went on to become a very popular and famous comedy writer for Graham Kennedy. Jim Murphy was in my class. He later became a journalist of The Age Green Guide and, and The Listener In. Michael Sharpley, who became an announcer at the ABC. Uh, funnily enough, most of us in my class eventually went into the media. How did you actually get into the media? You, you left school, and I, I believe you went straight into Channel 9. Is that correct? Yeah, well, you know, I, I had a passion for, for radio from an early age. There was no TV in those days. and At school, they had me on the microphone doing... Uh, Oh, well, there was an annual Maytime Fair, a big fate where they had me doing all the announcements, lost dogs and all that on on the day of the fate. Also, in 1957, the Associated Public Schools had a big athletics day at Olympic Park. And this is interesting. Um, uh, I wasn't competing that day, but they asked me to be the commentator and read all the results. Uh, and they said, uh, but we're not sure we want you to do it. There's a boy from Scotch College, and, and we might be asking him to go on, Mike, and you might become his runner. As it turned out, uh, he became my runner for the day, and his name was Andrew Peacock. No. Oh, Absolutely. Oh, oh, that is so good. What what great stories, and what a, what a wonderful, fertile time to grow up going through school. Years later, this is the, a sequel to the story, Andrew and I became good friends. And years later, I was in Chapel Street, South Yarra one night and passed Silver's Nightclub. And Andrew Peacock was sitting in there with two gorgeous ladies. And he said, come and join us and have a drink with us. Those two gorgeous ladies turned out to be actresses Liv Oldman and Shirley MacLaine. Oh, name dropper. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, how yeah, good. Uh, yeah, come on, we've been doing this 10 minutes. Let's drop a few days. <laughs> That's sensational. <laughs> well done. Oh, I love that. Now, tell me, how did you get the job at Channel 9? How did that all work out for you? Very interesting, yeah. yeah. I, I was lucky enough to get a, a scholarship to the um, university, which I chose not to use. It was a Commonwealth Government scholarship 
which would have paid all my fees and all my dues mm. through university. Mm. And that's when I graduated at Xavier. But no, I was single-minded. I had to get into radio. So I started knocking on doors, uh, including John McMahon at 3UZ, mm. Eddie Barmer at 3KZ. I remember Eddie telling me, son, you have to go to the you have to go to the country because you are lacking in the sum total of human experience. Oh. That's what Eddie Barmer told me. But I was dead keen, Gavin, and uh, I didn't want to leave home and 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 go to the country. Luckily, I was doing voice production with Lee Murray in Exhibition Street, and he had a call from Tom Miller at Channel Nine, who was then producing in Melbourne tonight. We're talking about very early 1958 now. I'd only left school a month earlier. And uh, Tom said to Lee Murray, we need a boy for two weeks as a temporary booth announcer, that being somebody doing the voiceovers, as you well know. And in those days, the visuals were slides. You know, they didn't have elaborate production uh, values. Uh, you were just sort of talking over slides. Stay tuned now for Wagon Train next on Channel 9 to be followed by Bat Masterson. Oh, except one night I called him, I called him Matt Bastardson. Oh, <laughs> oh easy, easy to do, Philip. It's that's very easy so, to do. So anyway, so so that that was my leg in the door to Channel Nine, Gavin, and uh, that was supposed to be, as I told you, a two-week engagement. Um, it turned out to become originally thirteen years because within a week of starting the voiceover at Channel Nine. Uh, Graham Kennedy took a shine to me, thought, oh, I can use this guy. And uh, I became something of a fall guy on his in Melbourne tonight where he'd send me up gutless. He really, he really made life hell for me in those early days. I don't think he liked me very much. And, and he really took it out on me because I'd been to a Catholic school. He'd say mean things like, Oh, I hope you choke on your St. Christopher medal, or I hope you trip over your rosary beads. The public seemed to love it. But e even though he made life hell for me, Gavin, it sort of made me a household name very early on. Mm, mm. Uh, now, now, tell me about, uh, you were working, of course, with the king of television. Did you have other mentors, other idols, uh, being so young and so new in the industry? Yeah, I'd, I'd always, I had two Normans who were heroes of mine from 3KZ, one being Norman Banks, the other being Norman Swain. And, uh, and, and I had a very early contact with radio. My father, Wilfred, apart from being a psychiatrist superintendent, as we discussed, he also was a composer of popular songs, and he wrote operettas and, uh, and had several of his songs recorded in the war years some of his songs, including one called Blue Dusk, got into the hip parades, and Norman Banks used to play it on a Saturday night on 3KZ. He had Top of the Pops uh, at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night. Well, now, he and my father became good friends, and my mother used to bake little party pies for Norman, uh, which we would take into the trades hall on a Saturday night and, and give them to Norman. It was sort of very early payola because the longer my mother baked the party pies, the longer Blue Dusk stayed in the hip parade. And, and also give my boy a job. Uh, yeah, and, and so I started haunting the trades hall from a very early age, you know, when I was seven, eight, nine years of age. 
and then became good friends with Billy Bouncer, Norman Swain in reality. Uh, Smokey Dawson's wife, Artie June, was doing the children's show with with uh, Swaney at the time, later, of course, Vinnie Lum. And so I spent a lot of time in the KZ, not on work experience, just sort of observing uh, people like Phil Gibbs, Eddie Barmer, John Ford, Kevin O'Gorman. All big names. Ron Applewood, yeah. Names from the past, mm. but you would know they were giants of radio. Gather. Absolutely, they were. They certainly were. Tobin Brothers believe every life is unique. Every funeral should be too. Visit turbanbrothers.com.au. Hi, folks. How are you? I'm Philip Brady, and you're listening to my buddy, Gavin Wood. You've met Graham Kennedy. He's taken a shine to you. He's, he's also uh, ha- having a go at you all the time. When did Bert Newton come into the uh, come into the picture? Oh, look, that's a really good question because I preceded Bert to Channel 9 12 months earlier. Uh, I, I started on Easter Monday, 1958. Bert was at the time very successful at Channel 7, uh, you might know, doing the late show. He he took over from Noel Ferrier. And so Bert didn't actually come across to nine until a year later. But we became very firm friends and, uh, uh, you know, we were like uh, brothers over the years. In fact, you might recall I was asked to speak at his uh, state funeral and uh, that was a great privilege. But uh, Bert, uh, Bert was the sort of bloke, any show he did, Gavin, he always included me, whether it was New Faces, whether it was Ford Super Quiz, whether it was Good Morning Australia. Any time through the years, Bert had the chance to use me as his second banana, he did. And, uh, uh, you know, we miss him dearly. Oh, I'll say. Now, tell me about that Channel 9 dynasty of live television which is not around these days, unfortunately. But back then, you were flying by the seat of your pants and doing an amazing job. Well, I plan to write a book one of these days. and I'll I'll tell you the title of the book in a moment and why it's been so named. But uh, we were doing, uh, in Melbourne tonight, five nights a week, live to air at 9.30. We're talking about black and white TV. We're talking in the days, certainly before satellites, uh, certainly before videotape. And uh, it wasn't unusual to have three or four live commercials to do, apart from your voiceovers. You might be in a sketch with Joff Ellen and Rosie Sturgis and Johnny Ladd. Uh, you'd have to have to learn your lines. Then you'd have these commercials and they'd say, no idiot, cheat, you have to learn them off by heart. I mean, what I did for... Um, for twenty four dollars a week, it's like slave labour. We were we were there five six days a week. That's what I started off on the equivalent of of twelve quid a, a week. Yeah, yeah. I started on seventy nine dollars a week uh, at at four and B in Meribah in Queensland in nineteen seventy three. So yeah. the money the money didn't go up that much. No, let me tell you, mate. I know your work. I think you were overpaid. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very little. <laughs> now, I told you I'm going to write a book. Simon Owens at uh, AW is always encouraging me to do my autobiography. And and the title of the book will be, and I'll tell you why, the title of the book will be Get Off the Red Carpet, I Only Want to See Stars. Now, <laughs> I, I, oh, that's I'll tell you how this came about, and you were probably there. At the Princess Theatre many years ago, we had the first night of Jersey Boys. I'm sure you right. would have been yes, there. Yes, I was It was there. a fan. 
fantastic. Like Bob Gaudio was over, yeah, as you know, yeah, from yeah. from the Four Seasons, and it was a, a special gala night. I walked onto the red carpet with my escort that night, Edna, in the Thomas, and uh, I think it was Fiona Byrne who might have distracted me. Uh, I think I stayed on the red carpet about five minutes too long, uh, being photographed and uh, interviewed by the journalists, uh, because I heard from down the other end of the carpet Susie Howie, who was doing the uh, promotion, uh, the Lord Mayor had just arrived in the premiere, and they were being ignored because the media were talking to me. Yes. <laughs> so, so Susie, who, who, bless her, who was quite volatile, screamed out for everybody to hear, get off the red carpet. I only want to see stars. <laughs> <laughs> what a good PR lady she was. And we know we, we only lost her husband, Paul, Thompson very recently, and they were the parents of Noah Taylor, of course, who uh, became a wonderful actor. Of course. Now, take me back to Prince Philip on the Tarak show. Oh, boy, you've done your research. Jeff Cork used to be Graham Kennedy's offsider. Back in when IMT started in 1957, uh, it wasn't Bert Newton, of course. He was still at Channel 7, but it was Corky who was uh, Graham's right-hand man. They had a, a very, very big blue, or around about 1960, they they had a big falling out. And in fact, in, in retrospect, I can tell you about it now because all the people concerned have, have passed on. Um, Jeff was married to Val Ruff, the singer, a great, a great song style as she was. Uh, but Graham used to tease... Corky said, oh, I think your marriage is on the rocks. And uh, Corky, who was a giant of a man, towered over Graham, was about six foot four. One night he'd had enough, and after the show, he grabbed uh, Graham by the shoulders, swung him around and said, listen, you little twerp, don't you ever mention my wife again. Uh, it, it was quite ugly. It was not on air. This was off camera. Uh, as a result... Corky was dropped from a Melbourne tonight overnight, as you'd imagine, and and became King Corky, King of the Kids. Happy Hammond had by then moved to Channel 7. Well, to cut a long story short, any time that Corky took a break from the Tarek show, they engaged Prince Philip. And that, in fact, was was me. Let's talk about the uh, the great uh, shows you hosted: the Money Makers, Password, Get the Message, and uh, also Casino Ten, which is the one I very nervously did the voiceovers for you because the great Philip Brady's here, and I was doing a voiceover. It was such an <laughs> honour, and I was scared. Oh, wasn't it a great show? It was a bit like the yeah. Wheel of Fortune. I was really sad when that finished. It was a great I, show. I took. I, do you remember? Uh, Gavin, I took that over from Steve Raymond. He was doing it originally. Mm -hmm. But my very first quiz show, people forget, was the local Melbourne edition of Concentration. And we're going back to 1960. We're going back. I'm only 20 years of age. And uh, every Monday afternoon, I'm doing this live to air, uh, no videotape, live to air show. And if the panel stuck too bad, you had to ad lib and, and just carry on. But the, the sad thing was uh, the coaxial cable was just coming in and um, uh, Reg Grundy flew down from Sydney. I hadn't met him. And we caught up in the canteen. He said, I've got some bad news for you. He said, uh, I'm afraid you're going to lose concentration. 
were going to go national with ah, Terry yes. Deere. And so here I am at the age mm. of 20, uh, crushed oh, yeah. and heartbroken to lose my own quiz show. And yet Reg Grundy said to me, he said, he said, I'll make a promise to you. He said, someday we will work together. He said, someday we will do a show together. And he kept that promise. And in 1968, we worked. And eight years later, he engaged me for a panel game in the afternoon called Everybody's Talking, which was on the Nine Network. And that was the first show I did for Reg, which, as you say, included later, well, Password, Get the Message, uh, money makers, casino ten, and and several other games. I said, Jimmy, Jimmy Haddon and I were sort of the kings of daytime TV there for a yes, while. Yes, you were. Now you had a couple of years off. You uh, got into travel. Tell me about that. Nineteen seventy-one, uh, Channel Nine had a big purge. They they cancelled all their live variety shows, and on uh, one day, a hundred and twenty-eight of us were given our marching orders, including including the Channel 9 Ballet, the Channel 9 Orchestra, the Channel 9 Chorus, all the folk we talked about earlier, like uh, uh, Joff Ellen, Rosie Sturgis, Johnny Ladd. Uh, oh, that's devastating. Oh, absolutely shocking. And, uh, you know, I thought I was set there for life. I'd been there 13 years. I thought, uh, I-, I tell you who has outlived me, and good on him, Pete Smith next year. Pete Smith, he's been, what a man. He's been at Channel 9 uh, 60 years next year. But back to 1971 when suddenly I found myself unemployed, I was good mates with Don Lund, the DJ from 3UZ, who'd started a travel agency in Beau Morris. That was in conjunction with Pan Am in those days. And he said, oh, you're at a loose end. Would you, would you come down and uh, be my PR man? And, in fact, that's exactly what I did. Uh, yeah, slim pickings in 1971 for me. I was doing weekend radio freelance at 3AW as a music man when there was no football. But it's the same year that, thankfully, Reg Grundy employed me for the first time to do uh, the Money Makers. But so, yes, I would go to Bo Morris every day and take phone calls and book people on different trips to different parts of the world. So after that, you had guest appearances on Good Morning Australia with Bert. Uh, then you had uh, Tonight Live with Steve Vizard and the ABC Late Show. Yeah. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride, and the bridesmaids always work. Well, that's why, uh, you know, Pete Smith and I have been mates since, since our school. That's why I guess we've survived because when you're sort of second banana, you're not sort of hogging the limelight. You're not really that dependent on ratings. Uh, they just keep employing you to sort of back up other people and make them look good. And uh, it's 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 a wonderful thing. I did that for Bruce for years at uh, 3AW. I sort of played stooge to him on uh, Nightline and Remember When for 30 years. Yes, well, I'm getting to radio now. We've done your television career. Let's get to uh, early 3AK, where no wrinklies fly, where 3AK had a caravan by the Channel 9 pool, and uh, you, as a television voiceover and uh, television identity, had to do a shift on 3AK, and you weren't paid for it. Yeah, Gavin, you're right. The year is 1961. I'd been at Channel 9 three years. You know, bursting to do radio all my life and didn't get the chance until... Channel 9 bought 3AK at what was then called Television City in uh, Bendigo Street, Richmond. And and the hilarious thing was, yes, all of us, including Eric Pierce and Bob Horsfall, Jeff Cork, Graham, Bert, myself, 
we're all expected to do a shift every day for free, you know, as part of our contract. And uh, operating from from a caravan, <laughs> somebody would walk into the caravan and you were playing this LP vinyl record. And, and because the caravan was a bit wobbly, the, the needle would jump about four tracks. So <laughs> you, you'd start off by introducing chances are, <laughs> but the needle would jump across to wonderful, wonderful. They, oh, that's, that's they, a nightmare. They were fabulous. Three AK had a license to broadcast twelve hours a day. We're on the yeah. same frequency as um, I think it was Bathurst, and uh, they had the license for nights. We had the license for daytime. But it, it, it was great fun doing those radio shows. Let's get the 3AW. Uh, in the 70s, you did various shifts. Um, and then um, how did you end up t- uh, to uh, Mwilumba and uh, and 4GG on the Gold Coast with Your Music Goes Ferber with Barry Ferber? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Gavin, things were a bit slim in 1985. By then, all the different shows I'd been working on at nine like New Faces with Bird, like Ford Super Quiz. Uh, there wasn't a lot happening. I'd also been pulling a shift at 3AK at the time. And and by the end of 1985, I really was doing very little. Thankfully, Barry Ferber from 4GG came to the rescue and said, come up here for six months and work at Easy Listening 97 on the Tweed Coast and uh, we'll give you a gig. So... Because there was nothing much happening in Melbourne for me, I accepted the offer, uh, flew up with my dog, Luke, who was a short-haired wire runner, planning to spend on the Gold Coast maybe maybe six months at the most. I, I enjoyed my gig at uh, Easy Listening 97 so much. It was a music station starting on Australia Day 1986. I not only stayed six months, I stayed five years. And, and had had among the best times of my life, particularly because of all the wonderful shows that were coming to the Gold Coast, to Twin Towns and the different bowling club. You know, it wasn't unusual for me to be interviewing uh, uh, the group America one week, the Monkeys another week, uh, Petula Clark another week, all these Max Bygraves, all these fabulous artists. It was like living in Las Vegas. Mm. Did you know that Max Bygraves uh, ended up uh, living in Redland Bay, uh, just near Brisbane? Oh, yeah, I did. And, and I kept in touch with Max and his lovely wife, Blossom. And sadly, near the end, he had uh, dementia. And, I, and I'd talk to Max and he would think he was back in London. So I had to sort of humour him a bit. That was very, very sad that uh, that his mind had gone because he was uh, – uh, we've been talking this morning about some lovely human beings. He was certainly one of them. Any song can be played at a funeral. What would you like? Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Hi, folks. How are you? I'm Philip Brady, and you're listening to my buddy – Gavin Wood. I think uh, you writing a book is perfect because you know you know the dates, you know the years, and that's as Molly said when he wrote his book. The worst thing was knowing what year the Australian cricket team came over for a barbecue at Christmas, uh, and and that's the most important thing when you write a book. So you're not going to have too much trouble writing a book. No, well, I I, I think I have total recall. And uh, years ago, there was a bloke at Channel Nine. Barry Bell was his name. He was the official photographer, and. Uh, in recent years, I went to Barry. I said, 
would you look at every photo that was ever taken of me at Channel 9 in those first 13 years, and I paid a fortune for them, but I, I can back up the stories with photos as well. Except up to now, I don't think I don't think I have a, a picture with Gavin Wood. Well, we'll get the, we'll get one soon. Don't worry. Now let's go to 1990 and one of the greatest radio partnerships in radio history. You and Bruce Mansfield. How did that happen? Yeah, well, I'd spent five years up on the Gold Coast and was feeling a bit homesick. I kept flying back to do television. I. I was doing Tonight Live with Steve Weisart, and you mentioned to us doing the uh, for Working Dog the uh, the Late Show on Channel Two with the DJ, and I kept flying backwards and forwards from Coolangatta to Melbourne to fulfil all these television commitments. And uh, I had my family living in my home in Kew rent free, and I thought, oh, five years, I think I think it's time to come home. Um, which I did with no job prospects at all. I was already 50 years of age uh, by the time I flew home. Funnily enough, there was a bloke on 3AW doing afternoons, a big guy, John Hindle was his name. Oh, and, what a sweet man. Yeah, yeah, and sweet he uh, interviewed Lovely. me like you did this morning, and uh, he said, oh, you're going to be my man of the week. Come in and pick up a hamper from 3AW. So, um, uh, of course, I'd been there as we discussed as a music man in the 70s but so here i am before christmas in 1990 i'd only been home a week going into aw to pick up this uh, food hamper and bumped into and met for the first time steve price who was program manager at aw at the time he said oh he said we're making some changes to remember when we've just employed bruce mansfield we're looking for a partner would you like to do it with him I said, oh, sure, because Bruce and I had been mates from uh, the Channel 9 days in the early 60s. We'd, we'd known each other for years and years and years. So on the eve of Christmas Eve 1990, we did remember when for the first time together and uh, inherited that show on a Sunday night. Within three months, Gavin, the Reverend Alex Kenworthy left Nightline. Suddenly... Um, that gig became available too. I said to Bruce, oh, let's have a go for Nightline. And Steve Price had planned to use different people. He tried Keith McGowan for a week, and then he said, oh, you boys, I'll put you on trial. After three nights, Price, he rang us and said, you've got the show. And so uh, by March 1991, we had not only Remember When Sundays, but we had Nightline five nights a week as well, and uh, kept doing that until Bruce passed away, sadly, in 2016. And then I kept doing the show for about another three years with with Simon Owens before our mate uh, Dennis Walter inherited it. Yes, the ever-changing world of radio. Now, that, that was uh, groundbreaking, you two. I remember Steve Price calling you one day and said, as long as you guys are alive, you will always be on 3AW. Yeah, that was nice. Uh, well, you've got a good memory. And also Tony Bell, who was our boss, said to us, and we're getting huge ratings, he said, I only want you to turn up every night. He said, I don't care. You can read the phone book uh, on there for all I care. He said, you can start from A and go through to Z. He said, as long as I hear your friendly voices at night, that's all we need. 
We don't care what you do as long as you're there. Mm, that's fantastic. Now, I want to get to 2018, a very special moment in your life. You were awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia for services to the broadcasting industry. Congratulations. That must have been a great honour for you and your family. Well, well thank you, Gavin. Yes, it was, it was highly unexpected. Uh, I, I, as I said earlier, I feel very unworthy of it because I, I, I think I'm probably a good communicator, but I'm... I'm really not an entertainer. I've been very lucky through the years uh, to get away with this because my act is, is just being myself. But uh, that it came from out of the blue. Uh, it's uh, something I, I cherish and uh, only sorry that my family, my parents were not alive to be a part of it. And uh, it's it's something that I'll, I'll take to the grave with me because, as you know, in this business, everything we do on air, it sort of goes up into the ether and, and it's lost forever, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Very true. I mean, we do, well, apart from perhaps a good reputation, uh, we don't have much of a legacy to leave behind in the way of bricks and mortar, do we? No. You also won the Best On Air team with the Radio Awards. Congratulations on yeah, that as well. Yeah, we did, we did that on occasions. And, uh, I, 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 and I must pay tribute to Simon Owens, my on-air partner, on Sunday nights at Remember When, which, which we're still doing happily. And... Uh, we're actually getting better ratings on a Sunday night uh, than Bruce and Phil used to get years ago. So, uh, you know, I want to acknowledge Simon's contribution and how important he is to my career at the moment. He's a wonderful man to work with. And maybe, Gavin, who knows, the wheel might turn full circle and we might work again as well. I always look forward to that day. Now, you're the patron of the Epilepsy Foundation and also uh, an ambassador for the Australia Day Committee as well. So the uh, accolades that you get are well-deserved. Now, Philip Stewart Brady, OAM, would you do it all again? Oh, I I wouldn't change a thing, Gavin. Uh, Very good question. Yeah, let's, let's turn back the clock. And let's begin again. Let me hop in my father's Hudson Terraplane <laughs> and let's make our way down to GDB9 and let me audition as a booth announcer. A couple of questions without notice. What's your favourite food? I love pizza. I like my Hawaiian pizza. So do I. Yeah. There's a lot of consternation about that, you know, the ham and pineapple, but I adore Hawaiian pizza. Yeah, so do I. We uh, uh, Hawaiian uh, pizza and then... Uh, Lemon meringue pie, please. Oh, now you're talking. Favourite holiday destination? You, and, and I know you've travelled the world uh, on, on ocean-going ships and planes and all of that, but what's your favourite holiday destination? Okay, for people going overseas for the first time, they say, where should I go? And my high recommendation is take the mountain rocky train through Canada to Jasper and Lake Louise and... Uh, then take a cruise up to Alaska. So make your way to Canada, start off in Vancouver, go across Canada through the Rockies by train, go back to Vancouver, hop on the the love boat and make your way up to Alaska. That sounds delightful. Your head of radio, Tom Malone, the Channel 9 radio chief, has, uh, has been quoted as saying, the future of streaming is talk. Philip Brady, long may you talk. Oh, Gavin, thanks so much, and and you've made my day, and what an honour to be a part of your podcast, and uh, I look forward to the next time when we get together, maybe I can shout you a pizza. Good on you, mate. Thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks, mate. I tell you what, 
when, when I cark it, that'll make a good obit, okay? <laughs> Done. <laughs> See, See you again. Bye, mate. Bye. Bye. This podcast brought to you thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives every day of the year.